0: Hello, and welcome to the Here and Now podcast from Federated Hermes. I'm Linda Dissel, Senior Equity Strategist. Today, I'm joined by Federated Hermes Senior Portfolio Managers, Stephen DiNicolo and John Ettinger. Steve and John are responsible for portfolio management and fundamental analysis in the global growth equity area and have more than 50 years of combined experience. Thank you both for joining the conversation today. I'd like to start and jump in with uh, good riddance to 2022, right? In the stock market that we have endured and particularly the small cap market. Now, I know you each have at least 20 years in this business. So I think maybe maybe I'll start here with you, Steve, and ask your thoughts as to uh, how macro was it, was involved this year and, and, and even versus history, you know, as versus fundamentals, terms of what the market did in small caps.
1: Sure. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for having us here today. I'd say emphatically that the overall macro landscape has really taken hold of Wall Street this year. And it's always tough to compare it to history and because the present always feels worse than the past and maybe certainly the future. Um, But right now, the old adage of, of don't fight the Fed is front and center for everybody. And You know, really starting in the first quarter of this year, when it became clear that Powell was on a very hawkish path and everybody knew interest rates couldn't stay zero forever, but it became clear that he wasn't going to let this inflation uh, run wild for much longer. And those words he used the year before, transitory, geez, it seems (laughs) long ago that he was calling inflation transitory. Um, He definitively turned. And it became all rates all the time. And what has happened in that scenario is that as rates have gone up, people look at anything long duration as unfavorable. And I remember my old finance uh, classes where you would do your dividend discount models and what's the fundamental value of a common stock? On paper, at least, it's the, it's the you know, present tense of future cash flows divided by a risk-free rate. That risk-free rate, Linda, as we know, went from zero to a lot higher. And that has hurt the perceived value of small cap stocks in the short term. And I, you know, it's easy to say that word in the short term, but you really have to take a second and think about that because when you look at the terminal value of a small cap growth stocks value three, five, seven years from now, it, it really doesn't change much given short-term variations in interest rates. And there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, these companies historically are less focused on debt, right? The way they're growing, their their pathway is a much different. It's private equity focused. It's capital markets focused. The amount of of debt on the balance sheets of a lot of these small cap growth companies that we're involved with is is minimal to, to zero in most cases. And you really have to take a second and realize when you're a company that is changing the way somebody does something. And it could be how you drive, the medicines you take, how you communicate, how you deal with your own workforce, et cetera. Um, These secular themes transcend short-term interest rate movements. And so it's really an opportunity we think where there's a disconnect between the fear and the worries On Wall Street and uh, the value of that company. You
0: mentioned liquidity there and their need, companies need for liquidity. And I'm not so interested in individual companies here, but rather liquidity itself becoming a particular concern out there in the marketplace. And if that is something that has hit small cap stocks in particular, would you say, Steve? I think there's that
1: perceived worry when you're dealing with a smaller cap company Um, that's in the early years of its investment, of its R&D, of its growth, of its economies of scale, Um, people worry about that. We have not seen any evidence of large liquidity concerns in the high quality growth companies that we invest in. Um, I don't think we have one example this year. Now you're seeing things start to unwind in something like the crypto market. Um, These are far, far... Left of of where we are usually investing in. And so um, this is not a scenario like 1999, the last time you saw a real bubble explode in growth companies where you just had a bevy of unprofitable, low liquidity type companies and a lot going under. Will there be some bankruptcies? Will there be some headlines? Sure. Um, But these are much more, that would be in much more cyclical debt laden companies. You're just not seeing it in, in the areas of traffic
0: yeah Stephen, I think you made a very important point what right there, which reminds us that when we get into small cap investing, it, it really is uh it's not a bad idea at all to have some professional management who uh, who really understands that you know there are there are many, many disparate companies out there. You mentioned the word high quality. This this brings to mind and I think it'll bring to mind a couple more times in our discussion today, the idea of Babies being thrown out with the bathwater here, in terms of maybe companies that you invest in that are getting hit. Now, I'd like to move over to John here, and and discuss what, uh, what you know, what do you think about the issues of being a small company versus a large one?
2: A lot of the IPOs we participated in last year were biotech, and uh, you know, a lot of these companies don't have any revenues. They're generally able to pass. Um, to raise prices annually. But, uh, you know, we're talking about some froth in the market. You know, last year was the the most prolific IPO market in history. I mean, there were uh, over 400 IPOs that came to the market and raised $150 billion. And that's not even including the SPACs. Um, you could double those numbers. The SPACs, there's over 500 SPACs, also raised another $150 billion. So there were a lot of investors and uh, you certainly saw some other investors that were buying, buying things they didn't really know. They weren't really understanding what they were buying, especially all the, the generalists that were pouring into the biotech IPOs. Everything was working. And then we had a, a shakeout uh, towards the end of the year and, and, the vast majority of the class of two, 2021 closed below their IPO price. So um, we see that as opportunity. And, and 2022 will be one, the lowest IPO year in history. And now, now we've really got a chance to, uh, without being inundated with evaluating all the new IPOs, to see what we own. And we're seeing some great opportunities um you're talking about babies being thrown out with the bath water um there was a point when biotechs had bottomed out earlier in the year where we saw 30 percent of small and mid-cap biotech companies trading below cash that's implying that their their technology and ip is worth less than nothing and uh we have scientists here studying these companies, and we can assure you that a, a great number of these companies were worth more than zero. Their IP was worth more than zero.
0: 30%. So. Now, that has to be a historically high number for all the years that you've been involved in growth investing, wouldn't would you say, John? Yes, yes. Um,
2: We've seen that number in the past, maybe 10 15%, but that was, that's the highest number uh, on record, Yes. And that was short lived. Now, I don't know if we'll test those lows again, but I can tell you at that time, our, our, our two PhDs on staff evaluating the science of these companies were pounding the table and saying, we see a lot of opportunity here.
0: That's really, I think, a powerful comment about the valuations and the volatility that went in, because as you said, leading into this year, the very unfriendly year for markets in general, and higher beta if you will, small caps definitely uh, than historic. But in your experience, John, with with uh, you know with the growth market, it's you know it's just always it's a very exciting market and so I know it has swings like this. As much value as you saw with all that cash on biotech uh, balance sheets, how about on the uh, before we even got into this coming into the year and uh, did you say to each other on your team, my gosh, these are historically expensive.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, generally we ride our winners um, and we, we don't set price targets here. You know, if you sell, sell your winners, you end up with a portfolio full of losers. <laughs> I but, love uh, it. <laughs> you know, we do trade around positions and we thought valuations were a bit extended um, and we took our cash position up. Our cash cash position right now is, is historically high. Um, but with the volatility that we're seeing in the market, we want to be able to put that money to work in our top ideas if we happen to test new lows.
0: I'd like to talk now uh, uh, with you, Steve, a bit more about the market and what we saw this year. You made reference to cryptos, and I think you may have also uh uh, brought up the specs now meme stocks, specs, um, wh- what what happened to the market this year? I thought I thought the fangs were in trouble. What did What do we care about meme stocks in a quality small cap portfolio?
1: The, the answer is we don't, um, but it is it does give you signposts to what's going on in the market and it was classic toppy, ish behavior that sort of since the lows in COVID, um, you sort of, you did see a gamification of the overall market. Uh, You had more retail Main Street participation in individual stocks than you've had since probably 1999. And it's all ending up in shambles um, as it often does when you see too high of speculation and again, it became, look, everything is going up. A rising tides lift all boats. The savings rate was up. So investors were flush with cash. They were home um, it, with maybe less to do than historical times. And it was sort of the perfect combination of, of a bubble. And it started with meme stocks and SPACs. And it's not that some of these companies are bad companies, but when they just become vehicles, for fun or social media posts, it's just, it really transcends what true investing is. And it's not something we're involved with, but it was a canary in the cold mine for what was to come, which was really a risk-off behavior and, and what we've seen. As we look through today, though, there will be opportunities in companies that have just gone down with everything, right? And, and that's really what we do. We look over the long-term, we're looking at a durable Business model that can generate free cash flow. Most of these meme stocks, most, most of these SPACs, they're liquid roulette wheels.
0: It's very, very interesting. You don't own meme stocks, and you don't own SPACs, and you don't own fangs. Maybe not, or or not, not exclusively, or too much, but rather are picking companies that maybe m- many people don't even know that they exist or what they do and yet when this bubble uh, commenced to burst the tech part of the bubble anyway commenced to burst it was much like back in 1999 when of course many of the investors who were playing these very fun games weren't even around maybe didn't even exist then but when this type of behavior happens and i know that that you're both you're you're both quite focused on the way you manage money in a volatile area of the uh, of the marketplace. Uh, one of my resources is uh, is Luthold in, in their December report. This very fresh December report is saying that small cap stocks today trade at a 29% discount to large company stocks. And they were only this inexpensive versus large for the three months right after the pandemic hit. Before that, you need to go all the way back to the to the tech bubble crash, which a lot of us learned a lesson back then and our children won't listen to us today. And maybe they have to learn the hard lesson today. And maybe that leaves you and your colleagues in a place with your dry powder that John has brought up in a a cash overweight to swoop in and take advantage. Now we've discussed about the market here. I'd like to move on and back with you, Steve, if I could about how how small cap stocks behave during economic cycles. At this point in time though there may be some debate I think most of us would agree that we're not in an economic recession now but that maybe we're going to have one next year uh, a vast majority of people think we will do. So how to be better
1: because we've already discounted it Linda That's a topic <laughs> for another
0: time. Uh, you know what and, and amen for that. Yes a lot of the damage has already been done in the market but how do growth stocks typically perform though in a slowing economic environment? Are they timely, Steve?
1: In periods of economic distress where you have a risk-off environment, initially you see small cap companies decline more. Why? They're illiquid, the companies are less known. You don't go, you don't look to small cap growth stocks in a flight to safety mode, right? In a fight versus flight environment, you you fly, right? And this can be said simply by, you know, buying low never feels good. And that's what you're seeing right now, where you're seeing a underperformance of a small cap company. Investors are looking for right now dividend yields, safety, larger cap companies, liquidity, etc. Even in an environment where everything has gone down, that's just basic human psychology. And what you're seeing right now, just from a valuation standpoint, is... very interesting number one if you just look at the russell 2000 growth which is a common um, index that just tracks small cap growth companies and if you look at and and this is where you need to look under the the hood a little bit if you look at companies in that index that are that have positive uh, earnings because a large part of that index is unprofitable and you have a large biotech contingent which is unprofitable you have to take that out okay and we can talk about biotech separately but But that positive profitable part of the Russell 2000 growth is trading at 14 times earnings, this year's earnings. That's historically extremely cheap. One other point I want to to mention on valuation, EV to sales, so that's enterprise value divided by your sales, right? Which basically values, which says, what is the value of that dollar of sales for a company? Large cap uh, growth index, which is all the things you talk about, as an EV to sales ratio of 3.5. The Russell 2000 growth EV to sales is 1.7, more than 50% lower. So what is that telling you? That that dollar of sales of a small cap growth company, which, is, which theoretically has greater growth potential, greater opportunity, less known, is trading dramatically lower than a dollar sales of Google. Now, I'm not discounting what the dollar sales of a, of a mega cap company is. But when you think about opportunity, when you think about potential, when you think about you know, where, where the puck is going, not where the puck is, you know that's a small cap growth company. And to see that divergence in what a dollar of sales is worth between a, a billion dollar company that has so much in front of it and a trillion dollar company is historically very, very wide.
0: Is it, is it historically... Uh, at a discount when normally it might be at a premium in valuation?
1: Historically, it's much closer. You're always going to see a, a premium in the sales ratio of a large cap company because there is stability for that. People will pay up for stability, even in a risk on environment. But to see this level of disconnect between the two metrics says that investors are afraid. They're worried about everything. Um, and they don't want to pay for it and it's also called you know buying low.
0: I think we talked at the beginning about how the macro has hurt growth stocks because they're long duration stocks but what but I love what you said which is actually quite true and people forget the stock market it, it is a forecasting mechanism it um, it tries to it, it moves in advance of what the of what the fundamentals suggested it should do so that the market has had a really bad year. And as you suggest, growth stock's a particularly bad year. And what if next year the, uh, the recession that 100% of us believe is going to happen turns out to be actually quite a mild recession? In general,
1: growth companies' metrics and their financial successes are much more resilient than a value stock. And that that is nothing against value. And I think every portfolio should be diversified. And that's more your area of expertise, Linda, than mine. But I understand the importance of a diversification. But if you think about what a growth company is versus what a value company is, a growth company can create their own momentum, right? If If it was a sports player, it can create its own offense, no matter what is going on in the world. Now, to answer your question specifically, You know, in recoveries where you have a more risk on environment, growth stocks, you know, have tended to outperform. If you think about what is going on right now that the Federal Reserve is trying to do, they're trying to slow everything down, right? In an environment where you have lower than expected GDP growth rate, investors should coalesce around companies that can grow regardless of GDP growth, regardless of currency, regardless of trade wars regardless of real wars, um, a value company in a period of high GDP growth rate is what? A, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? You have high GDP growth rate. You typically have low interest rates. Money is free. Money is being printed, etc. Everybody wins, right? Pre-COVID, we were in a low interest rate, low growth world, which was you know, unusual in and of itself, where growth outperformed dramatically from 2007 to 2019, right? Or really till 2020. And I think what the environment that Powell's trying to create a soft landing, we'll see what happens. But in that environment, we want generally lower GDP growth rates, generally lower inflation. And that should be,
0: you know, fertile ground for growth investing. John, let's bring you back into the discussion now. You mentioned biotech stocks and how they were trading uh, a great portion of them, an historic portion of them were trading below cash. Um, My thoughts have been that with the many uncertainties that are out there now from a macro standpoint, you'd like to get some fat pitches if possible, some serious pockets of value. And as you look at the landscape of the investable landscape, John, you mentioned biotech stocks. What others do you find of interest?
2: I would definitely... uh Call out biotech uh, as an area. There are a lot of areas where we see value. I mean, you'll see a lot of franchise companies um, in our portfolios uh, that, that have brands. Um, and and these, these companies, they're high margin and they're high cash flow, and they're, they're growing on other people's capital. It's the franchisee that has to put up the money to open these stores. And uh, and there's a, n- a number of avenues of growth. You've got unit openings and then you have same store growth and they don't have to, they don't have all the infrastructure costs of running the stores. They're, they're a franchise business and they're just taking a percentage off the top. Surprisingly, we're seeing opportunity in the REIT space, real estate investment trusts, which historically has been a de- defensive area, but because REITs have high leverage and, and interest rates have gone up, they've, they've sold off pretty much in line with the overall market. But we own a, a number of REITs that uh, you talked about the abilities to, to pass through cost of inflation. Um, we own some, some gaming REITs that have CPI escalators built into the, their contracts, so they're able to, to pass those through. Um, in the industrial REIT space, you've got long-term contracts, of five years that are now coming up for renewal. And, and these contracts were, were priced 20-30% below market. So when they come up for renewal, they're able to take up the prices of these leases 20 to 30 percent. And then of course, uh hotel REITs, um, you know, where the customer comes, they're changing their pricing every day. And uh and the price you can Go book your vacation and you'll see what your hotel price is. There, they're certainly able to pass through the cost of inflation. So that's it. REITs is actually an unlikely area for growth investors to find value, but we we are finding value there.
0: Well, yeah, that's really intriguing to me because we uh, when we think of growth investing, we do think of tech and biotech. And uh, we think of REITs, just as you said, as, as more of a defensive area. Uh uh, do you find opportunities in all the sectors of the marketplace, John?
2: Well, you know, we're seeing a lot of opportunity right now. And uh, I've mentioned a few sectors. And then another area where we've historically been highly underweight, um, we don't have a big bet there, but we've seen some opportunity, uh, is even in the energy area. And that's uh, that's an area that Steve DeNicola would be able to talk a little bit more about. but. Uh, Listen, when you've got when you've got your stocks down 30 percent, um, you're going to see areas in a, in a lot of different places. I mean, I, I, I tell our investors, our stocks are on sale right now. I mean, we liked the majority of these companies at the beginning of the year when they were 30 percent higher and now they're lower. And, and this is the time to start investing. I mean, buy buy low, sell high. It's the first thing everybody learns and it's the first thing
0: forgotten. Yeah, yes, it's it's true, isn't it, Steve? That we like we like to buy things on sale, but when stocks are off, we think, "Oh my gosh, there's something wrong. I must stay away from it." As you said, human nature. Now, uh, John alluded to some to some things, and throughout his discussion about uh, how your team looks at companies and what I always find infectious when I hear from you two is kind of the look in the look into the future and um, you know new discoveries new technologies that can change the world that can change that that we're not even aware of the next microsofts if you will um, can you share steve one of your favorite stories for for an example of a company that you might that you put into a portfolio and that's really cool that you, you think is really in the I find so infectious when you talk. Look, Linda, you use
1: the word, and I think the key word to focus on is the idea of change. The idea that the world is not a static place that tomorrow looks nothing like today. And it's our job and our pleasure to get sort of a front row seat into those type of companies. And thinking about how the world you know, will look differently. If you think about something as mundane as Gmail, right? Gmail does not sound like some new invention, right, Linda? I mean, it's 15 years old. <laughs> think about that, right? YouTube is is 16 years old, but, but think about what has changed over the last 15, 16 years. And so it's our thought of what's the world gonna look like 15 years from now? Um, And I firmly believe, you know, one theme is the electrification of everything. Elon Musk made electric vehicles cool. Electric vehicle technology has been around a long time, but it takes something to get over that tipping point. When you have a bombastic, omnipotent person preaching something, uh, it starts to change perception we've gone past the tipping point. And so the reality is, is my children's children, a thousand percent will be driving electric vehicles. Um, will be, will have electric everything could be HVAC could, you know, certainly lawnmowers. You see that today, just anything that you can think that runs on an internal combustion engine, the internal combustion engine was founded when in the 1920s. I mean, it's 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 probably time for a change. I'd say, right? Yes.
0: Yeah. So, so, Steve, can you give us an example of um, uh, something in your some that maybe we haven't we haven't heard or read about?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think in general we're skeptical of just every new electric vehicle brand that is selling cars. Historically, again, over the last hundred years, uh, selling cars isn't a great business, right? Selling consumer cars changes, you know. Consumers are fickle, right? And it's in the end of the day, it's a brand name. And what's more interesting is the nuts and bolts of how we get that electric to the home. And the fact is, if you look over the last 10 years, our electricity use as a country, I'm just talking the US right now, but it's very similar for the entire globe. Our electricity use is actually down, right? We have more efficient HVAC appliances, we have more efficient refrigerators and dishwashers etc and so we've become more efficient with our energy now we're about to plug everything into the wall if we do that our electricity use as a country is as on target to double very quickly in order to double that electric use in the US we have to harden our electric grid more than we've ever had before we're at the dawn of what should be a 20-year cycle in investing in our electric grid to handle this electrification of the world. There are companies, there are construction companies, engineering companies, equipment companies that play into this theme of hardening our electric grid. Now, this has been a theme for a long time. Our, our grid has been underinvested in forever, but now that was in an environment of declining use. Now we're going to double use and the capital expenditures that should go into that market are going to be very large. And there's a lot of ways to play that theme.
0: That's, uh, uh, that's a, that's really major. It's like, it's like transformation on John is, and as, as Steve describes it uh, crosses over so many parts of our, of our economy, but uh, can can you tell the group, the, uh, the kind of the more niche individual, but really cool story about the technology that helps police departments out there and uh, to catch the bad guys.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the, the names in our portfolio, um, they have a gunshot detection technology. Uh, They put up sensors, about 20 sensors per square mile, and it triangulates wherever the gunshot is happening. 80 to 90% of the gunshots that, that go off in this country, there's no 911 call. So people wonder why the police never show up in their neighborhoods when, when there's guns, guns blasting. Well, the majority of the time, there's no, there's no 911 call. And when there is, the, the, the police officer goes there and they, they knock on the door and somebody says, yeah, I, I heard a gunshot. I, they have no idea where it is or what it was. This, this will tell the police, it puts a dot on the map. It tells them exactly where the gunshot was, it, how many gunshots were there. Was it an automatic weapon? So, you know, w- were there multiple weapons? It, it, sends, it tells that, so the police know what they're walking into. And it builds trust with the community, that the community now knows that the police officer is going to come and respond. And hopefully it's a deterrent for the bad guys, And then also in the worst case, sometimes they get there and somebody's been shot and is injured and they can assist that individual
0: a lot, a lot quicker. Whenever I hear bad things happen, I think I know that there's some really smart people on the good side of things. And this is a really fine example of it. And you brought up a point that I really want to emphasize to the group, which is you get many of your ideas from the IPO market and can you can you explain how over the years your team has been uh, has been able to have access to management, some actually some unique access to management's and to IPOs to populate the portfolios that that you and Steve manage?
2: Yeah, I mean we have a, a reputation here of of being IPO investors, and we have great access, and we have the relationship with the investment banks, and we generally get to meet the managements of, of every company that comes public. Um, so we have great access to management and, and increasingly we're doing what's called testing the waters meetings, which occur six to 12 months before a company comes public. Uh, they want to get on the road. They want to start meeting with investors. They want to know, they want to be prepared. They want to know what type of questions they're going to get. And from our standpoint, you know, we're getting an early look at the company. Um, we get to do our research early. We're getting a head start, and when that company comes public, um, we're in a better position to know if we want to invest in it. And, and, and if we do, we're in a position to get a better allocation.
0: That is that is truly unique access. And and Steve, you know, piggybacking off of that, I've been told that you know if I should ever come to your to the office to your offices in New York, it might very well be a ghost town because everybody is out there and meeting with managements. Well, what are some of the high level thoughts from management teams right now that that you've been speaking with, Steve?
1: Sure. I appreciate the question. Um, I think more than ever before, at least in my career, I've had management teams say, so what do you think, Steve? (laughs) You know, (laughs) what's going out there? And, And I think and i think that just shows to your first question of this entire podcast which you know talked about how it's just been a macrocentric mania going on right now and at the margin it does affect cfo and ceo's confidence which affects capital expenditures affects hiring ex- affects expense extro- uh, control which is exactly what the fed is trying to create so let it be known that, you know, the Fed, it's like, careful what you wish for, you just might get it. The the Fed is going to get some type of slowdown, right? You can't have this on front pages all the time. But what I do see is that companies that we're primarily invested in do have a solution to a problem, do have our market share gainers um, are growing faster than the economy and their competition. So I think what I'm seeing is they're being cautious because they're told they have to be because the Federal Reserve is is telling them to be cautious. But the actual business trends, when you think about their three to five-year horizons, and a lot of these companies right now are doing investor days where they typically give like a three-year look, those three-year looks, aspirational goals, whatever it may be, are very positive, right? If you're a cyclical steel manufacturer tied to China's GDP, you know—you don't know what the heck's going on right now, but if you are a innovative med device company that is solving for sleep apnea, a new product that no one has ever seen before, you're gonna be okay. And if you're a company that is not reliant on the debt markets, again, you're gonna be okay. And so they see the volatility, and so they're cautious, but but really not much changes over a, a three plus year horizon.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, and and as we see ourselves quickly, unfortunately, running out of time, I could talk to you two gentlemen uh, for hours. But uh, but John, I think you did make mention about the uh, the volatility in the markets and a hot IPO market and then a nice cold IPO market. And now that we have cash around because there's some serious pockets of value, you've got lots of possible opportunities, but what is the current state of the IPO market? When do you think that might get back you know, back on the saddle again?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're, as I said, two, 2021 was a, a record hot IPO market with the number of deals and the amount of money raised. And in 2022, we're on track to be uh, a record low market. Um, generally, you know, we, we really don't care if it's a, a hot or cold market. You know, hot markets, yeah, there's a lot more to do, a lot more companies to evaluate. But if you've got a deal that's 20 to 30 times oversubscribed, you know, we're going to get a smaller allocation on the IPO. And then that stock's going to trade up 30, 40%. And then we have a decision to make if we're going to be adding to that company right out, right out of the gate when it's trading so so much. So actually a lot, we've made more money during during cold IPO markets. Um, with a cold deal, um, we can really get a big piece of the company if we want, and, and we're involved in the pricing of that deal. And we don't have to worry about the price gapping up on, on the first trade, and we can be a, an active aftermarket buyer there.
0: That's an excellent point, thank you, John. Uh... Well, we know crypto's having a, a winter that some wonder they'll be able to survive. But uh, meanwhile, you rather it sounds, sounds like you rather enjoy the winter. Well, thank you so very much, Steve and John, for sharing your perspectives and outlook for small caps in 2023. And of course, thank you to our listeners. We look forward to you joining us again on the Federated Hermes Here and Now podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to subscribe to the Federated Hermes channel to get every Here Now episode, plus our other series, Amplified and Fundamentals, for a global perspective on the issues, challenges and trends shaping the investment landscape. I also encourage you to subscribe to our Insights email updates for the latest commentary from the many great minds at Federated Hermes and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.
3: Views are as of December 12, 2022 and are subject to change based on market conditions and other factors. These views should not be construed as a recommendation for any specific security or sector. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Small cap companies may have less liquid stock, a more volatile share price, unproven track records, a limited product or service base, and limited access to capital. The above factors could make small cap companies more likely to fail than larger companies and increase the volatility of the fund's portfolio, performance, and share price. Suitable securities of small cap companies also can have limited availability and cause capacity constraints on investment strategies for funds that invest in them. Investing in IPOs involves special risks such as limited liquidity and increased volatility. Beta is a measure of the volatility of a security in comparison to the market as a whole. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against a loss. Russell 2000 growth index measures the performance of the small cap growth segment of the US equity universe. It includes those Russell 2000 index companies with higher price to value ratios and higher forecasted growth values. Due to their relatively high valuations, growth stocks are typically more volatile than value stocks. A Special Purpose Acquisition Company, or SPAC, is a publicly traded company created for the purpose of acquiring or merging with an existing company. A meme stock is a stock that gains popularity among retail investors through social media. FANG is an acronym that refers to the stocks of five prominent American technology companies. Terminal value, TV, is the value of an asset, business, or project beyond the forecasted period when future cash flows can be estimated. Federated Global Investment Management Corp.